Welcome to Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about the Mi'kmaq people and the Halibu First Nation. I'm Glenn Wheeler. Cross-examinations have just finished in the Abbott case, sponsored by the Mi'kmaq First Nations Assembly of Newfoundland. Two of the key issues in the case are the legality of the directive that established the supplemental agreement, and whether the point system is an appropriate way to determine who should be a member of the Halibu Band. The case is expected to be heard in either Ottawa or Toronto early in the new year. I spoke with lawyer Jamie Lickers of the firm Gowling WLG, who is representing the Mi'kmaq First Nations Assembly of Newfoundland. Let's start with a recap. Who is Justin Philip Abbott and the name of the case, and why did you choose him as the applicant? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so like we've done with, with all of the other judicial review applications, when we're developing the grounds that we're going to argue in the case, uh, we turn our minds to the types of applicants who have been affected by the decision that we're challenging. And um, what we've done in the previous applications, including for the Abbott application, is is put a call out to those individuals who've been rejected from Halapu membership, and we ask them if, if they meet certain relevant criteria. And if they do, we ask them to forward a copy of their application and we take a look at the facts of their case. And as you can imagine, there are many, many people who fall into into each category that we've challenged in federal court. And so it, it becomes a question of who has the strongest case and, and who has the strongest grounds for having their decision overturned. And that's exactly the process that we followed in, in choosing Mr. Abbott for this particular application. And in terms of Mr. Abbott's circumstances specifically, he was he was born in in Grand Falls, uh, Newfoundland, in the 70s, and and grew up in his home community of of Musgrave Harbor. Um, he only left the province to pursue his education. He got an, an engineering degree, and then returned home to the province to try to find work in his field. And and like many people from Newfoundland, was was not able to find. Uh, meaningful employment in his field, and and so he left the province um, and has been working outside of the province as as an engineer for a number of years now. Um, since that time, he has maintained what I consider to be a very strong connection uh, with with Newfoundland and with his family and friends back home. And he travels home often and communicates with folks from back home, and even takes his his kids back to Newfoundland on a on a pretty regular basis. Mm. So um, I don't recall now whether he was eligible to be to become a, a 6'2 Indian. Uh, if he were, would that uh, affect anything in terms of his um, appropriateness uh, to be the applicant? Yeah, so, uh, you know, some individuals who were denied applications for founding membership still qualify for membership and registration as a status Indian as a result of their, their parents, or one parent at least, being granted membership. And, and that applies to, to Mr. Abbott as well. The, the distinction, of course, is that um, because of his registration under a particular provision of the Indian Act, it affects his children's entitlement to be registered. 
there is still an impact on him in in being denied uh, founding member status uh, for the reasons that you set out. So it's not as simple as saying, well, uh, no problem for him. He can just apply under 6.2. It's not, uh, they're not the same things. That's right. And it, it's difficult to, to determine, uh, you know, we're still in the middle of the enrollment process and there are some folks who were rejected from founding membership who didn't know at the time that they were rejected whether their parents uh, would also be rejected. So if their parents had been rejected, then they wouldn't be eligible to register under the Indian Act under the current provisions. So it was a bit of a, a chicken and egg situation in, in waiting to see if you've been rejected, if your parents were also rejected, because that would really determine the status for the entire family. Now, um, let's look at... Uh the case in terms of the remedy. If you uh, were totally successful in federal court and the court granted you all the remedies uh, you were asking, what would that be? Well, primarily in the Abbott application, we're challenging the the directive that would that was issued through the supplemental agreement in 2013. So you'll recall that the supplemental agreement made a number of changes. Uh, the change that was challenged in the in the Wells decision was, of course, in relation to the self-identification criteria. So we, we can't attack that criteria again, and the court has decided on that issue. But the Abbott application specifically uh, challenges the portion of the supplemental agreement which issued the directive which modified the evidentiary requirements for meeting um, that criteria to show community acceptance and continued involvement with the Mi'kmaq community in Newfoundland. So the, the, are you taking on the point system directly? I recall that Mr. Abbott was a, uh, got 12 points, one point shy. So would, will that be a central issue in this case? Yes, so there's a there's a couple of key arguments that that will be advanced when we get to the federal court. One is the issuance of the directive itself and whether that action was proper under the terms of the original agreement. The original agreement of course set out a procedure for amending the agreement and only certain amendments could be made uh, in writing between the parties. Other amendments had to be ratified by the membership of the FNI. So, so the first challenge is the, is the way in which the supplemental agreement was, was created and the process that was followed. Now, the directive itself is questionable from a legal perspective on a number of grounds, including whether the directive and the institution of the point system is for a valid purpose, whether it actually furthered the objective of the parties to find the right members for the Halapu band. And so those aspects will be challenged as well. So even if you're not successful on the first point, you would still have a chance to uh, uh, attack the point system under the second part of your argument. Exactly. And I think there's a, I think there's a, you know, a valid argument to be made that the way the point system was applied really prejudiced people who moved outside the province. If we if we look at the way that points were allocated, if you continued to reside within the boundaries of of what's defined as a as a Mi'kmaq community, 
you know, the, that list was a list that was created by the parties and then the boundary for what what constitutes living within that community was also an artificial boundary that was created by the parties uh, to the agreement for the recognition of the band. So whether you lived inside the boundaries of a Mi'kmaq community was really a, a game of chance. You may or may not have lived inside one of these communities that came to be recognized. And if you lived a kilometer outside of the boundaries of one of those communities, then you would not be considered to be living within the community. And this assumption was made that just by virtue of res residing within the boundaries of a Mi'kmaq community, that somehow meant that you were actively involved in that community. And that assumption is, is not necessarily correct. People can live within a community and yet not be active participants in that community. So there were a lot of assumptions, and the assumptions tended to favor people who either lived within a Mi'kmaq community or at least continued to reside on the island of Newfoundland. And similar assumptions were made in relation to being a member of one of the recognized Mi'kmaq organizations was this assumption that if you were part of an organization or part of an existing um, a band organization, that you must necessarily have contributed actively to the culture and the development of Mi'kmaq culture in Newfoundland. And that's not necessarily true either. You could you could have joined an organization and never attended a, a single meeting but continued to renew your membership. And that assumption that you actively participated in the organization is, is not true in every case. And whereas people who um, who did not register in one of those organizations but still could, could have been quite active in cultural matters, uh, I think it was virtually impossible under the point system for them to get in because you've got so many points for um, – for being one of those uh, pre-existing organizations. So it was it was a bit unbalanced in terms of that. Yes, it's a bit arbitrary, which is, is what the law is concerned with, right? Mm -hmm. Do the criteria that were established, do they, do they further the objectives and, and the purpose that the parties were trying to achieve? And, and we, view, we view the criteria and the point system as, as being arbitrary and not necessarily furthering an authentic membership for the, for the band. So let's uh, uh, bring us up to date. Uh, you have just finished uh, cross-examinations in Cornerbrook and Ottawa, I understand. That's right. Tell us first how cross-examinations work. So I understand you get the affidavits of what the the witnesses' uh, written evidence is. You get to cross-examine um, the uh, F&I and Canada's witnesses, and they do the same uh, with, with you. That's right. And at the end of the day, the, the purpose of exchanging affidavits and engaging in, in cross-examinations is to establish the evidentiary record for the application that will be heard by the court. Uh, because judicial review applications are, are different than civil trials, at trial, you would normally call witnesses and you would ask them questions in court and, and that's how they would give their evidence. But because there are no witnesses called during a judicial review application, the parties exchange all of their evidence beforehand and, and that evidence is, is through those affidavits. And so the parties' affiants provide their evidence in writing and the cross-examinations is an opportunity for the opposing counsel of, of all parties to ask follow-up questions to get more information on on matters that are discussed in the affidavit or, or things that are asserted in the affidavit. Can you tell us how many people were cross-examined and, and who were they? Yes, so there, the federal government put forward 
two affiants, only one of whom was, was cross-examined. Um, the, the other affiant provided uh, very factual information on the number of applications and the number of people that were uh, either accepted or rejected for various reasons. And so uh, there wasn't any clarification that was required on that evidence. It was, it was agreed by the parties that those numbers were accurate. So that individual wasn't cross-examined, but um, one of the affiants for the federal government who spoke more to the, the process of the negotiation of the agreement and the negotiation of the supplemental agreement, uh, that individual was cross-examined in Ottawa, as was, as was Justin Abbott, uh, who resides in Ottawa, so he was cross-examined there as well on his evidence. And uh, only, only one Newfoundland-based affiant was cross-examined in Corner Brook, and, and that was the former chief of, of the Halapu Band, Mr. Brendan Shepard. Right. So uh, do I understand that there were three cross-examinations, uh, Mr. Rabbit, Mr. Shepard, and, and Canada's uh, witness? That's correct. Mm -hmm. And um, were there any... Uh, Surprises, of course, we've heard from Mr. Shepard uh, before, and maybe, and who was Canada's witness? Is it someone that we've seen uh, before? No, it's a, a new affiant to these proceedings, uh, an individual by the name of, um, his first name escapes me, but his last name is, is Ryer, and he was involved on, on the part of the federal government during the negotiations of the agreement. And were there any surprises for you, anything, um, unexpected that came out of uh, any of that cross-examination? No, and I, I don't think there were any surprises for any of the parties, really. The, the affidavits set out all of the evidence and information of the affiants, and while there were some follow-up questions that, that the parties had, um, there was nothing that came out during cross-examinations that I would consider to have been unusual or, or groundbreaking in, in any way. Mm -hmm. um, and I suppose, uh, of course, uh, these things are conducted in a uh, in a hearing room, uh, a meeting room in a hotel, typically. So I suppose it was uh, a fairly businesslike uh, proceeding, and not like uh, Perry Mason, where someone uh, <laughs> the smoking gun. That's right. It's it's not often as exciting as it as it looks on television, where you know these these um, very aggressive litigators ask the ask the question that really puts the nail in the coffin of, of a party's case. Uh, it, it doesn't often happen that way. And in fact, if you, if you try to ask those kinds of questions, you'll often get the opposite answer that you want, and it, it will just harm your case, not theirs. You finish the cross-examinations, and uh, what happens next? So the, the parties are working on their written submissions to the court. So in, in advance of appearing in court and making arguments to the judge, the parties uh, disclose to each other and to the court the arguments that they intend to make in, in a written brief, and that's filed with the court. So um, we're in the process of drafting our written arguments. The, the applicant always provides their argument first, and the FNI and the federal government, through their legal counsel, will draft their responding submissions, which will be delivered to us and to the court. And that, those written submissions form the basis of the arguments that are made when we actually appear in the federal court. When do you think you will know the date of the hearing? That That is sort of the burning question at the moment. Uh, we agreed, all parties agreed that we would put in 
our requisition for a hearing date before we, we finished um, the steps in the litigation. So we actually submitted our requisition for hearing, um, I want to say more than a month ago now, um, projecting that we would be ready for a hearing in early 2019, given that the applicants um, the applicants will provide their written submissions to the court by the end of November, and the respondents will provide their written submissions to the court shortly thereafter, meaning that all parties would be ready for a hearing in early 2019. And uh, we indicated to the to the court that we would take the earliest available date that the federal court has in either Ottawa or Toronto, depending on which one is available first. And so uh, I guess you're waiting you're waiting for the court now to get back to you on that on those dates. We were we are eagerly awaiting the court date. And would you expect it would be the same judges in the Wells decision, or would it be definitely not? Maybe, or um, what do you expect on that? So it it could it could go either way. It it could be the same judge. There is there would obviously be advantages to having to having the same judge that we had in the Wells applications. The judge would be familiar with with the background facts of the case and and the general context of of the enrollment process. There's nothing. There's nothing that would preclude Justice Zinn from from sitting on this subsequent application, uh, which deals with with the same facts, obviously. Um, but it doesn't have to be the same judge. So it, it could be, but it might also be a different judge. And uh, would you expect it would be two hearing days or more? No, I, I expect that I expect that one full day is all that would be required in court again because the parties aren't introducing evidence in court because the evidentiary record is established by the affidavits and the cross examinations. the the only The only matters to be addressed in court will be the arguments of the parties and, generally speaking, on a on a judicial review of this nature, the applicant wouldn't wouldn't need more than two to three hours to make their submission and each of the responding parties would probably need an hour to two hours to respond. Um, so it, it would be one long day, but it could be done in a day. Jamie Lickers, lawyer for the Mi'kmaq First Nations Assembly of Newfoundland. Before we go, a reminder that the public swearing-in ceremony for the new Halibut Council takes place on November 23rd at 9.30 a.m. at the Civic Centre in Cornerbrook with a reception to follow. Hope to see many of you there. And that's it for the show. Allison Baker is the technical producer of Mi'kmaq Matters. Celebration time used with the permission of Mi'kmaq artist Marcus Goss. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, listen to Big Mom Matters on Bay of Islands Radio, in Norris Point and Rocky Harbor, tune in on The Voice of Bond Bay, and in St. John's, catch us on CHMR. I'm Glenn Wheeler, till next time.